It is good to be back with you. It has been a few weeks. Uh, I had to go to Australia. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So uh, two, two days, I think it was, before I left, with the windshield, it was minus 20 here. And it, it hit 84, 82, something like that, while I was down there in Australia. So, I mean, somebody has to do that. Somebody has to, somebody has to make the sacrifice and, and go. Uh, the reason for me going was actually very blessed. Uh, I went to speak for AYC, which is essentially Australia's version of GYC, uh, down there in Melbourne. Uh, excuse me, Melbourne. And uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. Uh, the Lord blessed. It was interesting preaching at 4 a.m. Uh, body time, you know, because it's on the other side of the world. That was, a, that was an interesting experience. But uh, the Lord blessed some very, very good people down there. Uh, the Lord's work is alive and well in Australia. So... Welcome to part three of our series entitled, God Has Great Plans for Your Past. And, and if you missed parts one and two, I am sorry, I do not have the time this morning to give you a review, but if you go to pmchurch.org, you will find some links to our archive, and you can catch up on parts one and two. Uh, we have spent a lot of time talking about what to do when the shadow of your past, the things that you have done wrong in the past... Uh, is, is casting onto your present. We've talked quite a bit about that. But what do you do when the past is casting a shadow on your present, not because of something that you did to someone else, but because of what someone else has done to you? Someone else has harmed you. You know, in my experience, the, the response of, of, of human beings when, when they are experiencing harm or about to experience harm, and particularly if they have no control over it, the, the gut instinct is to run. And this is not all a bad thing. If, if there's a guy that's seven feet tall and 400 pounds and he's swinging his fist at your jaw, you should probably run, okay? That's a good thing. If you're in an abusive relationship, you should get out. Make your plan, make your escape, run, get away. And, and, sometimes that instinct to run actually becomes a way of life. Running away from the past becomes a way of life to the extent that we are still running even though the actual threat of harm has long since passed. Now, this running takes various forms. Some people will move thousands of miles away to, to, to get away from the harm of the past. I remember reading one story of somebody who actually got plastic surgery, they got an entirely new identity in a new place, in a new, running away from the harms of the past. Most people don't go to that extreme, but, but even if we stay put physically, there's lots and lots of running from the shadow of the harms of the past physically, socially, mentally. Sometimes we run by, by, by overcompensating. Uh, we, we try to appear uh, like, like we are, are, are stronger or faster or smarter than, than we actually are, trying to prove to other people around us that the past never happened and, and maybe actually we're also trying to convince ourselves that it never happened. And as you're listening to my voice, there are some of you here that know that you are running. There's some of you that don't know. Maybe the people around you may know it, maybe closest to you, maybe they know, maybe not. But you are running, and some of you have run long enough that you realize this is not a race that you can win by running. And you would like nothing better than to stop. 
to rest and to no longer have the shadow of harm's past intruding onto your present. Well, if you find yourself in that situation this morning, or if you know somebody that's in that situation, praise the Lord, there is good news. You can. You can stop running. Because again, God has great plans for your past. Now, quickly, before we, before we dive into this, there, there are two things that I, I need to share, brief but important. Number one, the journey that I'm going to talk about today for some of you should only be undertaken with the help of caring Christian friends around you who know what's going on. And for some of you, you also need the help of an, of an ongoing relationship with a qualified Christian counselor. Now, now, some people are really reluctant to go see a Christian counselor. I just want to tell you, don't be, don't be. Whatever difficulty you think you might encounter by going to a qualified professional Christian counselor, the benefits will outweigh the pain, okay? And sometimes the difficulty of what happened in the past, the harms that happened to you, requires somebody that, that, that's had experience, that knows what they're doing. So don't be afraid to find help when you need it. And secondly, the journey that I'm going to talk about today is one that I have taken. And given the uncertainty of life, maybe I'll have to take it again sometime. And I can tell you for sure that what I'm going to talk about today from Scripture, if you decide to do it, some of the blessings involved will come just like that, almost instantaneously. And some of the blessings will take years. So don't be discouraged. If you take what we're going to talk about here today and you begin to apply it to your life, oh man, why, why, how come I'm not making the progress? Hang in there. Put your hand in Christ. He loves you. He cares for you. He died for you. He lives for you. He will take you through no matter how long it takes. And with that in mind, let's get to it. As it turns out, when there have been harms to us in the past that are overshadowing the present, as it turns out, biblically speaking, there actually is not one single path that God has used in the lives of various Bible characters to make that happen. However, it seems clear to me, and I, my, my, I trust you'll agree by the time we're done here, that there are two basic tasks that God asks us to undertake if we are to, to leave behind the shadows of harms done against us in the past and move into the light of His present and future. Two basic tasks. And those two basic tasks can be found here. Genesis chapter 37, please. Genesis 37, verse 17, page 27 in the red Bible that's in most of your pews there. Page 27, Genesis 37, beginning with verse 17. And actually, let's start in the middle of verse 17. We're going to talk about a story here of a guy by the name of Joseph. Now, the story of Joseph is so rich and deep, we could spend weeks on it, and you would not exhaust the topic. We're just going to pull some particular things out here. Joseph was the son of Jacob. Uh, Jacob uh, had many sons, actually. In fact, so many sons, these were the sons that eventually became the heads of the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, This is very early, therefore, in in Jewish history. And uh, uh, Joseph is a little bit spoiled by his dad. Uh, He's one of two sons from from, uh, uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, and uh, he's their favorite, and and they're, they're spoiled. Joseph has a dream God gives him this dream. And in the dream, it essentially says that at some point, Joseph will rule over his brothers. The younger will rule over the older. Now, that will get you in trouble a little bit today. 
But in those days, I mean, this, this was heresy. I mean, it was, it was a very uh, uh, age-stratified, age-respecting culture. And so for the younger to proclaim, hey, you're all, you're all going to bow down to me someday. Ah, those were fighting words. They were angry. And then God gives a second dream. And basically it says the same thing. And Joseph naively runs out, tells his brothers again, and they are furious about it. Jacob one day calls Joseph and said, I want you to deliver some things to your brothers out in the fields. And so Joseph goes to find them. It takes him a little bit. And that's where we join the story, verse 17 of Genesis 37. Middle of that verse says, So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, which his father Jacob had given to him, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Now, pause for just a moment. In what culture, in what what type of sanity is this this an equal trade? Okay, we don't want to kill him. He's our brother. Let's let someone else do it. Okay? I mean, this gives you a a picture of kind of the barbarity of, of the culture of that time. Verse 28, so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Skip down to verse 36, please. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, does this qualify as harm? Can we just be agreed about that? Is that yes, yes, okay, all right. Some of you were slow. It's not a trick question. Okay, yeah, yeah this, this qualifies. You know, I grew up with lots of siblings uh, here and there, half-steps, biological, etc. And we had lots of fights, but no one ever sold me into slavery and no one ever threw me into an old well, okay? I mean, this, this is genuine harm that Joseph is experiencing. I mean, can you imagine? He, he's probably still a little bit smaller, at least, than, than his older brothers. He's certainly outnumbered. And, and, and they, they, they attack him here. For all he knows, he's going, to, he's going to be killed. And then he's sold to slavers. How easy it must have been for Joseph to be tempted to turn inward, to become bitter, certainly against his brothers, and quite possibly even with God himself, right? Because after all, the, the dreams that the brothers were upset about, where did the dreams come from? <laughs> I mean, it's from God, right? This is from God. And so Joseph here, I mean, is just delivering the good news that God has given to him, and this is his reward. I mean, how easy it would have been for Joseph to slip into skepticism, to start running, to run from his past, to run from his brothers, and yes, to run from God. But notice carefully, 
Genesis chapter 39, please. Verse 1. Genesis 39, beginning with verse 1. Page 28, just another page over there. Genesis 39, beginning with verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field, so he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So everything's going peachy king. This looks really, really good until... Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. And then notice this. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against... Potiphar? Potiphar's wife. His family's legacy. No. How could I do this wicked thing and sin against God? What is happening here? I mean, so often, I mean, again, the story is rich. I understand. People are drawing all kinds of different lessons from it when they preach or teach through this thing. But do we forget where Joseph just came from? I mean, this doesn't, it's not like this doesn't have a context here. How, how has Joseph, how could he possibly go from, from being completely justified, filled with terror by being imprisoned by his brothers and then being sold as a slave, how could he go from the temptations to run away from his brothers and God and all of it to this, where he staunchly and passionately stands for God? Let's play this out a little bit here. So many people, when they run away, when they run away from the harms of the past, they run to drugs, alcohol, and sex. It's kind of standard operating procedure for humanity. But Joseph, even though this, quote, golden opportunity has presented itself, I mean, think, think of what could have gone through his mind. Ah, oh, I deserve this. After all the terrible pain that I've been through, you know, this, this is my, my comfort here. And no one will ever know. I am the head of the household. I can cover all of this up. In spite of this, quote, golden opportunity, Joseph does not do it, even after the harm he experienced in the past. How come? Why doesn't he do it? The only explanation for Joseph's now adamant and passionate loyalty to God that makes any sense is that Joseph at some point between being sold as a slave by his brothers and being in Potiphar's household, Joseph has made some decisions. And in fact, we find that Joseph had begun, with God's help, the first task in disarming the shadow of past harms. The first task 
in stopping running from the past. The first task in disarming the harm of the past is this, to forgive. To forgive. And I can guess what some of you are thinking. Uh, first task? I mean, aren't there some other things that are supposed to come first? I mean, maybe down the line somewhere. But I mean, first, the first task in there? So let me quickly clarify. This command is not an isolated one. God here does say that we need to forgive. Let me just put one example here up on the screen, Colossians 3.13. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's a command. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. This sounds very similar to the Lord's prayer, does it not? You know, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us here. This is not an unusual thing. God is, is asking this, that we forgive even those who have harmed us. And I, and I understand immediately people get nervous because they think this, this is too quick. So understand what biblical forgiveness is. Biblically speaking, to forgive someone who harmed us means that by God's grace and our decision, we come to the place where we can honestly say three things. It happened... It mattered, and I release you. It happened, it mattered, and I release you. Biblical forgiveness does not mean, oh, what you did to me, oh, that was nothing. Don't worry about it. Biblical forgiveness does not mean that it's okay what happened to you, the harm in the past. Uh, Biblical forgiveness does not mean that the person who harmed you is free to do it all over again. No. Biblical forgiveness instead means that by God's grace we come to the place where we can honestly say it happened and it mattered and I release you. You know, we can see the first two parts of this. It happened and it mattered clearly here in the story of Joseph. Uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 213. Let me just put this up here for you. She says, meanwhile, Joseph with his captors was on the way to Egypt. So this is a little bit earlier in the story. As the caravan journeyed southward toward the borders of Canaan, the boy could discern in the distance the hills among which lay his father's tents. Can you imagine? I mean, he can see all of it. He is is leaving home. Bitterly he wept at the thought of that loving father and his loneliness and affliction. Again, the scene at Dothan came up before him. He saw his angry brothers and felt their fierce glances bent upon him. The stinging, insulting words that had met his agonized entreaties were ringing in his ears. With a trembling heart, he looked to the future. What a change in situation. From the tenderly cherished son to the despised and helpless slave, alone and friendless, what would be his lot in the strange land to which he was going? And notice this. For a time, Joseph gave himself up to uncontrolled grief and terror. In other words, Joseph is saying it happened and it mattered. It was wrong. It shouldn't have been that way. Joseph, by far, is is not the only one that does this in the Bible. Uh, The psalmist, David, have you ever wondered why certain psalms were in the Bible? Sometimes they're called the imprecatory psalms. I mean, it's pretty hardcore stuff that David is, is railing against this evil in his life. 
Let me just give you one example here. Psalm chapter 22, verses 1 and 2 and 12 through 17. Famous words here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my words of groaning? I cry out by day, O my God, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. They open their jaws against me like lions that roar and maul. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax. It melts away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs surround me. A band of evil men encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now, we don't know exactly what the harm was that had been done to David, but he is most definitely pointing out it happened and it mattered. And those of you with long experience in Scripture, you know that these are not just the words of David. These are also the words of Jesus Christ on the cross. In fact, there are many scholars that believe that Jesus, while on the cross, actually recited both verbally and sometimes inwardly the entire chapter of Psalm 22. And, and, and why does he do it? Well, I think the lesson is crystal clear. Even God himself acknowledges the past. Even God himself, Jesus Christ, acknowledges that what happened, it mattered, it was wrong, it should not have been that way. And all of this is being said and done while firmly on the road to forgiving. And why is this? Why must the process of forgiveness include acknowledging the past harm and its full extent? You know, the answer is is actually simple. It's because forgiveness means nothing unless it matches the magnitude of the sin. Forgiveness means nothing unless it matches the magnitude of the sin. There is no half-price sale on forgiveness. Just as we talked about in part two, any amends that we must make, it must fit the sin that we have committed against somebody else. So forgiveness of someone who harmed us can only fit the sin that was actually done. And consequently, when it comes to we human beings, those who, for instance, immediately upon being deeply harmed, proclaim forgiveness for their enemy, almost certainly have given a forgiveness that means little and will not last, for it does not acknowledge the true cost of that which was broken in their lives. So when it comes to the task of forgiving true harms, there nearly always must be time for mourning, for wailing, for weeping, for anger. For only then can we know what forgiveness is even for. Only then can our forgiveness of a perpetrator of real harm actually have meaning. I think this is why, at least in my experience, some of the most troubled Christians are those who do not take seriously the first steps of the task of forgiveness. They don't acknowledge that it happened. They don't acknowledge that it mattered. Instead, they stuff their feelings. They pretend it never happened. They don't talk about it. They don't cry about it. They don't acknowledge it, hoping that maybe if they ignore it, it will just go away. But you cannot run away from who you are. And for many of us, part of who we are is that harmful event, that painful memory. And part of finding God's freedom 
is to acknowledge that it happened and that, yes, it mattered an awful lot. Only then can forgiveness do fully what God intends for it to do. Speaking of, let's check back in with Joseph. The next part of Joseph's life is difficult. The whole kerfuffle with uh, uh, Potiphar's uh, wife lands him in jail. But God blesses him, and Joseph essentially becomes in charge of the jail. And while he's in charge of the jail, there are some dreams that uh, two of the uh, courtiers from Pharaoh's court have. Uh, The interpretation is given them, given to Joseph. Uh, He tells them about it. They are, well, one of them at least is thrilled. Reputation travels. Pharaoh himself is given a dream. And it predicted that there would be seven years of, of uh, fullness in the crops, etc., followed by seven years of famine. He doesn't understand the dream, though. Joseph's reputation comes to the court. Joseph comes to the court. By the grace of God, he rightly interprets this dream. And Joseph is elevated to be second in command of all Egypt. The seven years of plenty come. Two years into the seven years of famine, guess who shows up in Egypt to try to find some food? It's Joseph's brothers, the very perpetrators of the harm against him. There's a series of meetings that take place. Again, it's fertile ground for all kinds of study there. But would you take a look, please, at Genesis 45, beginning with verse 4. Page 33, Genesis 45, beginning with verse 4. On what would be the final visit... Uh, with, with his brothers, at least while uh, Joseph was still uh, you know, not, not recognized by his brothers, Joseph now feels that the time has come. He is going to reveal himself. And notice what he says. It tells us that somewhere prior to this point, Joseph had taken that final step of forgiveness. He had not only recognized that it happened and that it mattered, but now he had released his brother's as well. Let's read carefully here. Beginning with verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 5 again. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, these are not the words of someone who is still hanging on to past harms. This is the language of release. Joseph has emotionally and spiritually released his brothers. In other words, he had forgiven them. There's all kinds of good reasons for why Joseph would have done so. But perhaps one of the most basic is that he realized a fundamental fact of human existence. After we have sufficiently grieved the loss that the harm caused us, the only one who is harmed by us continuing to hang on to this thing is us. We are the ones who suffer. When we hang on to the harms of the past, it's our blood pressure that's being raised, not, those, not that of those that harmed us. It's our stress levels that are elevated, not theirs. 
If we do not release those who have harmed us, they are still living rent-free in our minds, controlling our thoughts, shaping our destinies. And get this, they can even be dead for decades. The harm they committed long ago while they were still alive, now they're dead. They've lain in the grave. But if we do not release, they will still be exercising an influence in our lives for bad and not for good. But when we release them, their control over us is over. When we release them, their power over us is broken, and we do not have to be slaves to that memory and pain any longer. Surely this is why Jesus commands us to forgive. It's not a suggestion. It's not like a gentle tip for how to live life better. Jesus commands us to forgive because when we forgive, not only are others released, but so are we. Oh, the freedom we find when we forgive. It's the first task that is necessary to enable us to stop running from our past. And it is this first task that makes us ready for the second. Genesis chapter 50, please. 5-0. Genesis 50, verse 15. Page 37 in your red Bible. Genesis chapter 50, beginning with verse 15. Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. Uh, uh, his father Jacob comes back to Egypt. All of their families and herds, etc., comes. They settle in Egypt. Uh, Jacob was already well along in years when he comes to Egypt. And it wasn't too long after that that he does pass away. And when he dies, Joseph's brothers begin to doubt that Joseph had actually forgiven them. That's where we join the story here, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if, Joseph, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before you died. Quote, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The first task, as we said, in stopping running from the past and disarming the shadow of past harms was to forgive. The second task is to love. This is not my idea. The first time that I heard about this, I was opposed. You want me to love them It's bad enough that you're asking me to forgive them. Now you want me to love them as well. So you should know, this is not my idea, and it wasn't your idea either. I'll just speak for you on this regard, okay? This is God's idea. This is what what Jesus says. In fact, just to make sure that we're all singing off the same page here, Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 43 to 47. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and 
Hate your enemy. And all the world says amen, right? I mean, this is how we roll, right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Wow. Uh, you know, Ellen White speaking specifically of Genesis 50, what we just read there. Uh, this is uh, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 239. She says, Joseph's love for his brothers, there's that word, Joseph's love for his brothers was deep and unselfish, and he was pained at the thought that they could regard him as cherishing a spirit of revenge toward them. In other words, he was pained because he had forgiven them. He really had. Fear not, he said, for I, am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring it to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. Joseph had not only forgiven them, he had actually come to love them. Now, please notice carefully. To love those who have harmed us does not mean that we have to like them. Jesus loved the Pharisees, but he didn't go golfing with them. Okay? To love those who harmed us does not mean that we trust those who harmed us. Now, if a harmed relationship repairs by the grace of God to that point under the right healthy circumstances, praise the Lord. But it is by no means a requirement. Again, Jesus did not trust the Pharisees. <laughs> And as with forgiveness, to love our enemies does not mean in any way that we condone what they did to us, any more than Jesus condoned the sins of those that he loved but who sinned greatly against him. But to love those who have harmed us does mean that we come to the place that we, as Jesus clearly says, pray for them, that we come to the place that we want what is best for them. That we come to the place that we no longer wish them ill, but instead pray that they too will repent and be in the kingdom of God. To love those who, harm, who have harmed us, as the Bible describes, means that we come to the place where we treat them, either in person, if that's appropriate, sometimes it's not, or at least just in our minds, our attitudes toward them. We come to the place where we treat them as Jesus treated his captors on that crucifixion weekend. And as for Joseph... Well, Joseph, in coming to love his brothers, not only were his brothers blessed by that, but Joseph undoubtedly came to see better how much his heavenly Father loved him. Behold the unfathomable character of God, that he should lavish forgiveness and love on such undeserving creatures as we. And having been on this journey myself... I know what at least some of you are thinking. You're crazy. No way. Do you know what happened back then, Pastor Say, Well, I don't know specifically, but I bet I can guess. Okay. Yeah, I've been around for a while. Okay. You don't know what happened. How could I possibly? This is impossible. Nobody can forgive and, and love their enemies, those that harm them. To which I would say, you are absolutely right. You can't do it. I can't do it. So Jesus does it for us if we are willing to ask for and accept the gift. A story. Some of you are familiar with a, uh, a woman by the name of Corey Tenboom. Uh, Corey Tenboom, she, she she's passed away. Uh, she and her sister Betsy 
were uh, placed in concentration, one of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany during World War II. Uh, they were at Ravensbrück, and uh, uh, Corey's sister Betsy died there in Ravensbrück. Uh, Corey wrote a couple of books about her life experience, including one called Tramp for the Lord, uh, where she basically tramped around Europe telling her story and and talking about God's forgiveness. And on one occasion, she had a speaking appointment in Germany. And I'm going to read to you here a couple of pages from Corey Ten Boom's story. She says, it was 1947, so two years after the end of the war, year and a half, two years. And I'd come from Holland, that's where she lived, to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said... God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And even though I cannot find a scripture for it, I believe God then places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. So she says this to this this group in, in Germany. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. So the meeting is finished now, and this this man is making his way forward. One moment I saw his overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a cap with skull and crossbones. It came back to my memory with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. That place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. 
If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I stood there still with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even then I realized it was not my love. I had tried, and I did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. To forgive those who harmed us is ultimately a decision a decision to let Jesus do in and through us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. And in the same way, to love those who have harmed us is ultimately a decision, a decision to let Jesus do in and through us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. So I must ask you, how is it with you today? Have you forgiven those who have harmed you in the past? How are you doing with that process of of working through those indispensable stages by Christ's power to becoming honestly able to say that it happened and it mattered and I release you? And how are you doing with the decision to love those that have harmed you in the past, to forgive and to love? You really can stop running from your past. And that stopping can start right now. For the promise of Jesus still rings true. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You really can stop running. Because God really does have great plans for your past. Lord, for those that are listening right now, I I pray, Lord, for some blessings for them. Lord, for those that simply need to make some internal decisions, Lord, just between you and them to, to, to dispel the shadows of harm's past, please grant them the courage to make them. For those who need friends, Lord, around them to help them through this process, send those friends to lift them up. For those that need to seek out, Lord, a Christian counselor, someone that can walk with them, Lord, deep, deep into that darkness, please, Lord, give them the resources that they need. We long to be free that we might be fully yours. Bless us in this way, for we ask it in your name.
en algo.